Obviously, Doctor, you've never been a 13-year-old girl. I Welcome back to Hate Fiction. I'm here today with a very special guest. Do you want to introduce yourself? Yeah. Um, okay. So first of all, thank you so much for inviting me on. This is my first, this is my podcast debut. Um, so I'm really Ooh. nervous. <laughs> um, I am, um, I'm, I'm like looking at my Twitter to introduce myself. <laughs> I'm Inga, <laughs> aka at Thoughtology. Um, and I'm really excited to be talking about Mary Gateskill. Um, should I say anything else to introduce me? No, I think this is pretty good. I yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> I mean, this episode, I've, I mean, I've been planning to do this episode from like the very beginning, as I told you earlier. Uh, so I'm very excited for this, like genuinely. Because <laughs> I know you're a huge fan of hers. And um, like, I read a lot of, of her stuff just because of you posting about it. So um, this is very exciting for me. <laughs> I'm so honored. <laughs> So um, kind of like the overarching theme for this episode, though, I mean, we're going to talk about her writing, but we're also going to talk about um, the movie Secretary. And the general theme is sex work and sadomasochistic relationships. Um, so I don't actually know what like a good story to start with is. Um, we can start with the secretary. Yeah, we could. I mean, I think I guess I guess I can say like. I mean. I think it's fun that you came to her through my tweets that like is um that is exciting to me as I'm um I like to introduce other gals to Mary Gates skill but also like I guess I'll say a little bit about how I found her um because I actually so I feel like I've encountered her very late in life um, which sounds very dramatic, but like, <laughs> um, I came upon her through my now husband, um, who's really fond of her. Um, and it was like in, in 2019 is the first time I read anything by her in the summer. Um, I'd like fact checked an interview with her for a magazine I was interning for, like, when I had just finished college, but for whatever reason that like, and I mean, I should have read that interview to uh, prepare for the podcast. Cause I guess, I don't know why it didn't like, I don't know why I didn't become interested in her after editing that interview. So I'm really curious to go back and read it now that I'm like a huge fan to see what didn't resonate with me. I think it might've been because it was like about her book, the mayor, which I haven't actually read, but it's not if from what I remember from the interview, it's not like, it's like about horse girls. So I just like was like, I don't really want to read this, which is totally weird. I mean, thinking about horse girls and like secretary and like the stories we're going to talk about today. I'm like, this is like not the same person, but but I can't actually speak to that in like a, in like a proper way. But anyway, so, so yeah, I came to her, my um, husband recommended bad behavior to me um, when I was living in New York for like a, 
like a two month writing workshop um, in between semesters at a PhD school. And um, and I, I actually was recommended reading. Um, I think it's um, I want to say Connection is the story that um, was he told me to one? read. Um, no, um, it's the one about the, it's, it's one of the only, I think it might be the only story in bad behavior that focuses on, um, like two girls who are friends and, oh yeah. And it's kind of just like low, yeah, I think that's a connect or a connection. It's just like kind of like low grade conflict between two girls. Cause I was trying to write a story about like low grade conflict <laughs> between two girls. <laughs> um, but and, I mean, it's definitely not like one of the stories that people are especially interested in, in bad behavior. Um, but that's kind of how I came to her. Um, so not for the horniness, I guess, was my first like experience with her. <laughs> um, but then I was very surprised, like upon reading the other, cause I just, I just really didn't like know what to expect. Um, yeah. So anyway, we can. Do you think her writing is actually like you know, pornographic because I am not sure if it's even erotic. It, I mean, it has a lot to do with sex, but I kind of like, I don't know, reading it like really turns me off. Like <laughs> I'm like reading it. I'm like, I don't, you know, I just don't want to have sex ever again. Like, I don't want to have anything to do with this. Yeah. I don't think it's pornographic. I mean, I think, well, there's like, um, she like, has been quoted saying something like people are like oh you like horny things like do you like the Marquis de Sade and she's like not as a writing influence <laughs> just like just as whack material I guess <laughs> um which I think is I think perhaps I don't I don't know how to uh I guess I would put that in conversation with her work by saying I don't actually I think her writing is like post horny <laughs> like interesting because I think you're like I mean part of why it's so like horrible and pleasurable to read her is that you understand that there could be like some erotic like appeal or like you abstractly like read something like secretary or um uh, gosh, the other one that we are talking about, um, like trying to be in secretary in a romantic weekend, like I think less so something nice, but um, with those, you kind of like understand that there could be something if it were like slightly different, someone could read it as erotic, but then like, it's just, it like pushes just past that into not like a, like objection where you feel bad for people, but in a way that like the, horniness or eroticism of it like gets not nullified but there's something that happens to it that makes it like ambivalent um right yeah because it's not like abject exactly it's kind of like sort of like on the way to being abject but it doesn't quite go there so it just leaves you like feeling very um I don't know weird about the whole thing like it's very like you end up like questioning your own emotions like I don't know it's funny that you said that you don't think something nice or like trying to be which are like the two stories that focus on like um prostitutes and like their clients 
um, could be seen in an erotic light because uh, like one of my favorite movies, Crimes of Passion, uh, like Dio's, um, it's about this uh, woman who is an architect by profession, but she gets off by working as a prostitute at night. So, uh, um, and, you know, just like sort of like, I think a lot of like erotic thrillers from like the early nineties and stuff kind of deal with that sort of like the dynamic between a woman as a sex worker and like her clients and what that has, like how erotic that can be, um, what the powers and that kind of dynamic and stuff. And I think Mary Gats get like, it's kind of like, as I said, like it doesn't quite feel abject where you feel disgusting about your desires. Like she still understands the complexities of those kind of dynamics and she allows you to feel like you're allowed to feel horny about it. But at the same time, you're kind of left feeling like, you know, it's been too intellectualized by the story. So it doesn't feel like that, you know, primitive anymore. So you don't feel horny about it anymore. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) post-horny. Because it's like, there's something about the way that like, the girls and the stories it's because it's almost like they're like they're not intellectualizing it to a degree that it like becomes like masturbatory for the reader right like and not masturbatory in like a literally like masturbation way but in like the figurative like intellectual like circle jerking type of thing Um, where there's, like, too much theorizing of, like, desire, sex, or whatever. But, um... There's just, like, enough theory to turn you off, but it's not... But, you know, but you still end up, like, feeling, yeah, post-horny about it. (laughs) Because they are, like, the girls in the stories don't really... aren't trying to be horny from what's happening either. And then if they are, they kind of are able to like write that off in ways that just make it make you as a reader feel like ambivalent about the grossness where it's not gross enough that it's disgust, but it is also kind of like not quite gross enough that it's hot, I guess. Right. I don't know. None of the male characters are, like, that evil or, you know, like, especially, like, in the sex worker stories, like, trying to be and something nice. Like, both of those clients and in one of them, like, one of the stories is told from the perspective of the client and the other one is told from the perspective of the girl. They're both kind of, like, relatively nice. Like, they don't come off as awful people at all. Like, uh, because in both of those stories, like, they um, are depicted to be somebody who visits prostitutes in order to basically like satisfy their like intellectual kinks and not actually their sexual desires like they're there to talk and like yeah, sleep with bohemians is like because when it's like in describing it like that it makes me think like oh like that's so like it just feels really like out outdated or like something that like wouldn't it just seems like it would be really played out, but I think maybe somehow in like in conversation with uh, their stories, it works because I mean, like the grossest, I guess like the grossest guy is probably the lawyer from secretary, but, um, but I guess the guy in a romantic weekend is also kind of skeezy, but I, I guess what I'm trying to say is that like in these stories, like I know that um, 
maybe you didn't reread an affair edited, but that's one. Um, I've taught that one and I've taught secretary a few times and an affair edited, I think has maybe the, like the most like questionable man. Um, and, and in that one, um, I guess in case people haven't read it, it's like, it's mostly from his perspective. He's just kind of like a, kind of New York fuckboy who um, works in film and like has all of these girlfriends and kind of like girls that he sees. And then part of it is him reflecting on this girl that he dated in college um, who may or may not have had some kind of sex work thing. I mean, the sex work is always really like not the, also not the point in her stories about it, right? Where they don't spend all that much time thinking about it. And there is also kind of a, I mean, yeah, because in trying to be and in something nice, they, the girls both have these kind of like other aspirations. And I mean, something nice ends with the girl being like a museum girl. Like she's like a gallerina, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. The other one I think, think goes to work as an editor for like some fancy magazine or something. I think that's, I think she has, uh, I think. Um, like both of those stories kind of have a very modern perspective on sex work, you know, like the, the perspective that like sex work is just like a passing thing to do in your life in order to earn a little more money as you like grow into your career and your career path and stuff. It's like, I don't know if you saw that article I was going around, like I think a couple of months ago of this, um, like some writer opinion, whatever person, um, she was talking about how she wishes more uh, women did sex work early in, in their careers because that would allow them more freedom for like hookups and relationships without having to work multiple jobs. And obviously people were like, you know, um, <laughs> like <laughs> that's crazy. <laughs> yeah. But it, it just, it, but it's that kind of like modern perspective on sex work that it can just be like a passing thing that you do in your life um, as like, I don't know, like an experience or like, it's another thing and like both in um, something nice and trying to be. Um, there are multiple characters that are referred to who are stated to be like artists or like researchers or whatever, who go into sex work to like, um, I don't know, improve their craft. So they like see it as like a big, um, research, I think in like something nice or something like one of the clients like asks her, like, are you like, are you journalists? Like, are you writing a book about like New York, um, houses or like, what are you doing here? You don't seem like you're from here. And it has that kind of element of like, you know, like a middle-class bourgeois girl doing sex work as like a way to make herself seem more bohemian and experimental. Yeah. God, I mean, okay. I'm looking for like this one line in, um, oh, okay. It's like the second paragraph of, um, of trying to be, um, where okay so in like describing christine's the whorehouse uh, it was called christine's after the woman who ran it a tiny frantic blonde tyrant who would rather who rather desperately fancied her hideous paisley sitting room to be a salon and forced long minutes of excruciating conversation between women and johns before allowing them to escape up the stairs we're known for our intellectual woman, she told Stephanie during her interview. Everybody here does something. Alana here is an artist. Susie is a fashion designer, and Beatrice is a nurse. <laughs> like, um, yeah, I've, that story has so many lines that just like kill me about like they're like 
outside the whorehouse jobs like the the bit about like the village voice I thought was like really really funny um knowing people who have written for it um but um but I think that I mean it's interesting that you are like characterizing this as kind of like a modern approach to sex work because in many ways I mean it seems like I guess charmingly 20th century her I mean there is so much about like gate skill that still resonates right because she kind of she writes in a kind of non-moralizing way about women and sex and I think I mean if we get into the essay she kind of makes lots of points about like non-moralizing or trying not to moralize um but and of course there are like very prescient things in that essay and like conversations that are still being had, whatever, whatever. But there is also something that is like, again, charmingly like 20th century about these stories. And that I think if you were to kind of, I mean, in certain circles of online and if you were to pause it, like sex work is a means to an end, a means to another career or like a way to have cash while you're working towards something else. I mean, I think, and, and I didn't read this article and, um, but I think that that people who are very like anti-sex work are going to react to it in one particular way. But I also think that people who are pro-sex work would like bristle at um, some of Gateskill's or if they really sat with it, would bristle with some of Gateskill's like depictions of sex work as kind of as simply a thing to do before doing something else, right? Like she's not arguing for its like emancipatory potential in any of her stories. I mean, she's never arguing for an emancipatory potential in anything, but but I think this kind of means to an end of we do something besides this and ultimately we want to quit this because like these men are kind of losers even if there's like one that we like talking to I I think now it seems like if if you were to ask some girl like doing an OnlyFans like do you want to do something besides this the like the kind of party line would be to say no this is this is it even if it's you know Right. So I think that there is something that is like dated and the dated thing is that she's not arguing for any kind of like liberation through anything that you do, um, sexual or not. But I mean, the other characters in the stories do though, right? Like I think there are multiple points in both of those stories where I think it's the, like the clients, the men are like, oh, like, um, like, doesn't that make you feel like a bit like more interesting and glamorous and weird that you're not like working minimum wage, but you're like a prostitute and, you know, you're a writer and you're an artist and you get to like write about it later. Right. It's like, I think there's an element of like, to this day with like OnlyFans and stuff where it's like, there is a certain glamour to it because of how like primitive and like animal it seems to people. Um, that, you know, like it's a lot more interesting, like no matter what people say, like it's always a lot more interesting to read about someone's stories, like working at a whorehouse or doing OnlyFans or like running like, I don't know, like a camming business or whatever, right? Then to like read about someone's experience, like working as a waitress. So I think like there is an element of like that old fashioned bohemia, like 80s, 90s, New York, where your experiences are kind of what define you. And we're still kind of like, we're still cling on to that, right? Where like your stories and the stories you tell are 
I mean, it's like the whole thing about confessional culture. Yeah. And I mean, I think that there's also, there's certainly a, I think in trying to be, especially there's like, well, cause I mean, in something nice, there is no, she like refuses to tell the client, like what it is that she's interested in, like ultimately doing. Um, but in trying to be, she is explicit about that. Um, but and there's some line in it that does kind of echo the general, like, um, like collection of experience in order to create something with that. I mean, we have that with her friend, like asking, like, are you writing? Are you whatever? And she's like, I'm taking notes, but it is also this kind of like in her not writing, there's maybe some kind of interpretation that one could make about a sort of like potential futility in collecting these experiences. If you can't ever actually like, manifest or I don't want to say manifest because it's overused and maybe inaccurate but there is like right what if there's futility in collecting these things in that it's possible that you can't actually like shape them into something Um, right I mean it's the whole idea of like content as well right that like every single like life experience that you acquire, like every single thing that you do can also be turned into like content. It can be turned into an income. It can be turned into like your story and your story is like what defines you. It kind of makes me think of this um, old blogger. Her name was Carly Slut Ever. I don't know if you've ever heard of her. She did like a serious, she she wrote like a blog and then she did like a serious with Vice um, where she like interviewed a bunch of like, like sex workers, um, I don't know, sex experts and whatever, and like questions of relationships and whatever. Yeah. Her last name is like Scleary, something like that. Like, yeah, 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 I remember her. Um, I remember reading her memoir like a couple of years back and in it, like basically she started out as like a wannabe actress in London where she had moved like straight after high school and she didn't, she ended up living in like a squat house and having like a bunch of really like messy sexual relationships with uh, older men. And she started writing about those experiences and that that's what she got her like a bunch of writing gigs for Vice and like other um, like 2010s media corporations. And basically that's how she like got her career, right? Like through these like messy, humiliating sexual experiences. And in her book, like she talks about her experiences, like working as a sex worker, being like a sex slave to someone and things like that. And it's just like, uh, I mean, it's entertaining, right? Like, I mean, we, we like to hear about sex, you know, that's why I, I know yeah. you were watching sex in the city the other day, like posting oh my God. about it. <laughs> Like there is something, and especially we want to hear about our friends' sex lives and we want to like, you know, we want to know, we just want to know. Yeah. And I think, I mean, and we're kind of talking about the like post horniness of like some of these gate skill stories, but also like, cause there is like maybe one thing that we're both kind of trying to find the like right way to phrase is that there is, there's like a a voyeuristic element that is maybe missing a little bit from these stories, at least how I read them. It doesn't feel as like, um, I mean, it feels to me more present than many like memoirs about sex, but because there is like a distancing element of fiction and there is also like, I feel like 
I'm able to not read this like in a kind of like autobiographical way, even though I think probably whatever, like we can return to sort of autobiography and confessional in a moment. But I, I think there is like this kind of resists a voyeuristic impulse in a way that I think that kind of more contemporary writing about women and sex um, invites um, or that maybe like at a time we were kind of like invited to in the 2000s, 2010s and stuff, we kind of get invited to do this type of voyeurism of abjection um, and I think that there's kind of a push against that and maybe that's why like the gate skill resonated with me when it did instead of when I first encountered her is because I was kind of feeling like fatigue at the kind of like overproduction of like women writing about sex Um, right writing about bad sex as well which is like a fixture of all female writing I feel like like women love to write about having bad sex it's like a thing (laughs) but um no but it's actually now that I think of it and I, I didn't think about it before is that like I don't think she ever describes a sex scene and bad behavior. Like she always talks about like the things that go, you know, like she talks about foreplay. She talks about like, you know, humiliation that's involved in like SM and stuff, but she doesn't talk about sex. They they never have sex. I don't think they do. Um, Yeah. And if it, cause she talks about like the aftermath of having sex, but she doesn't talk about like actual intercourse. Like she never describes it. No, you're right. She totally doesn't. I'm trying to think like a romantic weekend is probably the one that we get closest to like, um, to them actually having sex. Right. Um, yeah. But even then I think every time they get close to it, like something happens, like he says something wrong or like, you know, she says that she's not into it or whatever. Like they never, they never actually do it. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So here's, um, he's like biting her boob and then, um, the sex scene is literally Gatesville writing. They screwed <laughs> period. <laughs> like, and then it's like moving on to the like aftermath. <laughs> um yeah it's just like lost in the middle of the paragraph um and immediately they screwed period they broke apart (laughs) um yeah that's why it's not sexy like (laughs) no one's gonna be turned on by that yeah I guess I'm also not like a reader of smut so I don't like (laughs) know what people expect (laughs) Um, I'm a huge Anais name fan so like okay (laughs) yeah no um what tell me like what do people expect like let's compare and contrast Anais Nin and Mary Gates skill (laughs) well I think the whole thing about Anais Nin is kind of the foreplay that leads to sex like I don't mean like physical foreplay I mean I think it's just like the erotic tension that she describes really well so when it does actually get to like the climax of the scene no pun intended it, like you know it's <laughs> it it like it gets you through that like I think that's the difference between like male pornographic writing and like female erotica because female erotica okay. like erotica written by women for women is mostly about like the story right like women love a good story and they love when sex is involved but like you know it's it's like the thing with um I know I said I was gonna read 50 shades of gray for this I did not I <laughs> 
I, I just I, I found you. out how big that book was and I was like I'm not reading this it's like super long um but like that's the whole thing with like 50 shades of gray right and like movies like the secretary and stuff is that like a lot of it has to do with the story around it and women are turned on by things like you know powerful men wanting weak women like it's like it's like that whole thing and I think I think that's why Mary um, Gateskill's stories don't resonate in that way is because the men, like the dynamic between men and women and sort of like the power imbalance is not the same. Like men aren't more powerful than women in her stories and women aren't like weak in a cool and powerful way, but they're weak in a very pathetic and sort of human and simple, like everyday mundane way, which is also kind of um like unattractive ultimately yeah and I mean I think that's like one maybe one thing about so the the film adaptation of secretary is that like I think one thing that really bothered me is that it kind of read the apathy of um the gate skill story incorrectly where it just kind of made everyone like I feel like every character had their like IQ slashed by about 15 points and like that's what made <laughs> that like <laughs> portrayal possible <laughs> like because um, I like the way in which Debbie in the story is disengaged is not out of some kind of like submissiveness or kind of like female like fragility or kind of like girlish naivete um or weakness but then in the film adaptation she like takes on all of those qualities and it's like I'm not sure who's like looking to her in the movie as like a place to project yourself or to have some kind of fantasy. I honestly think that the story, despite it's like, I think the story is much more erotic than the movie because of the like particular, like detached, like the detachment style in the story, I think is hotter for lack of a better word, because you can see that it's not like stupid or naive. It just kind of is in a way that, maybe isn't good for fantasizing because maybe people don't want to fantasize about something so mundane, but it like, but I also don't see how the the movie is like, is it overcorrecting? I mean, it feels like, I don't know who it's for. Like, I'm like, who wants this? (laughs) She just seems so out of control. And in the, in the story, it's not like she's in, she's not in control or out of control. She's just kind of like going through it. I mean, I think in the story, she's kind of just coming to terms with her own like masochistic desires and tendencies, while as in the in the movie, she's very well aware of them, but like somehow not doing anything about it. Like I thought that was a bit weird because in the movie, she's depicted as being like like a serial cutter and like self-abuser, right? <laughs> she's a collection of knives that she carries around and keeps in her little like uh pink girly um pencil case or whatever. Yeah, like, pink what bag. <laughs> yeah and, and, and like a bottle of like iodine or whatever that she uses to like, I don't know, treat her scars after. Like I and then 
but she's still somehow clueless about like the sexual elements of her like desire for pain right and it's not like she's uncomfortable with it because like in the movie like the only thing I quite like the movie actually that's why I was like oh my god oh no <laughs> responding oh okay, no to every to single one of your posts um but because I didn't expect you to hate it I was like oh no this is <laughs> this is not what I, this is not what I expected from this at all no I um but I think the one thing that really frustrated me about the movie was the fact that, you know, like when um, Mr. Gray and her break up or whatever you can call like the ending of their relationship, like the middle of the film, she yeah. goes on to like, she goes on to go on a series of random dates with like men that she finds for newspaper um, adverts, like, and who actually all want to, for her to abuse them. But like, if she knew that was an option before, you know, if she knew where to look for that, why didn't she do it before? Because I'm pretty sure we're supposed to think she's like a virgin before, right? Like in the film, she's like a 25 year old virgin who just came out of the mental hospital, who like experiences sexual urges for the first time somehow. But like, there's no way she. I'm saying, I'm like, nobody's that dumb. <laughs> like, I'm like, why did you do this to her? <laughs> like, I mean, I have many hangups with the adaptation but one like I get the main hangup is like why did you make her because it also kind of draws this like bizarre like parallel between like cutting and like whatever being mentally ill and like this is now connected to sex is connected to like a hunger strike or some kind of like I'm probably pronouncing this wrong, but like asceticism, like how did we do that? Like, I just don't understand how that happened. Um, I mean, I do think that cutting is kind of sexual in nature. I mean, I talked about this before, but you know, like Saad wrote a lot about like bloodletting and stuff. And I think cutting, like modern version of cutting has a lot to do with bloodletting and like trying to get rid of the bad blood for like sexual and physical purification. So I think it's pretty sexual. I, I get that parallel. I just don't get how it's all like mashed together. And are we supposed to think that her only like mental problem is the fact that she like is a masochist and everyone is like... And is that a mental problem? I mean, I don't know. Right. All she needed to do to stop cutting was to like, I don't know, be, you know, like get spanked. Like, <laughs> yeah. Like, why didn't she do it before? That is kind of confusing. Like, I think it would have been kind of, I mean, I guess more controversial, but also kind of hotter if she was younger. Like, if she was like somebody like straight out of high school, you know, struggling with her like sexual urges, I could understand that more. But she is like 26 in the film. Like, how did she survive so long? Yeah, because I think I read her as maybe younger in the story as well um, than in the in the movie. But I, I mean, I think that like, yeah, it does kind of pause it like being a masochist with some kind of like a mental illness thing in that how can you not kind of draw that conclusion from how it's like set up, which seems... Then also it says that most of your masochistic urges can be cured by a good marriage to a sadist, right? Like that's ultimately the point the movie is making. Like if you're a masochist, you should just marry a sadist and then you're going to be, you know, well off for the rest of your life. And I just also think that like part of what's like, I guess it seems like she's like 
too into it. And, and well, I mean, cause it also, okay. Two things. I mean, like the movie sets it up as like, there is like a daddy issues thing happening in the movie that I think maybe like cheapens what it could be like saying about desire in that like there's no reason for them to have made like the dad a drunk like there's no reason for it to have been in like a psych ward um so I don't know I feel like that's kind of it's like trying to give this backstory that is completely unnecessary because if this is a movie or if this is a story about like um like desiring pain which is not new or interesting right this is very like normal um why are they kind of setting it up in this way this to me uncomplicates it but also makes it like too specific um one of the nice things about the story is kind of like the lack of specificity I'm or or it's like it's much easier to project onto the story I think despite its kind of particular markers of like location um that are interesting to me having spent a lot of time in the metro Detroit area but um but I think that the like the story is not necessarily about her deciding that she's into sadomasochism but more that she's not not into it and that to me is a major difference between the movie saying she's into it and is like figuring out that she's into it or has already figured out and whatever and the story is kind of positing what if she's just not not into it and this kind of like and that to me is a I mean a more complicated understanding of this kind of desire right is you're not not interested rather than you are explicitly interested which is like a running theme throughout a lot of her stories right because the same thing goes for a romantic weekend where you know like the woman in the story thinks she's a masochist but turns out that she really kind of isn't i think there's a really interesting thing that um the like the main character in that story says at some point um I think I bookmarked this, but I'm not sure if it's, the, no, it's the wrong page. God. Um, but he says something along the lines of like, uh, you don't like, you don't really like pain. You don't have a slave mentality. And she's like, oh, yeah. you know what? Maybe I don't, but I always thought I did. And then it turns out really, she just kind of, I don't know, liked being uh, humiliated by like the person that she's in love with or whatever. Right. Which I think is like an interesting thing in general, because I think a lot of girls, especially now confuse like masochistic tendencies with like being, like liking being choked a little, you know, like that, that was like, like that's, that's like a thing, right? Like, um, I think people talk about this a lot in TikTok now, like the post-sex positivity movement. That's like all like, you know, we were like psyoped into thinking that like, you know, like that if we wanted some, like something sexually that we had to go for all of it or none of it or whatever, like that whole conversation exists as well, where it's like, you know, just because you like a little bit of pain doesn't doesn't mean you want to be like chained to the wall. Yeah. And I mean, that's also, I think that this kind of does fit into a general, like a more general conversation about, um, like impulses towards like the autobiographical or like 
wanting to like confirm experience. I think that that's like tied up in that too. And kind of wanting to like put a name to something, even in like a time of like not wanting to name things. Um, but, but I think this also kind of like gets wrapped up in what we were talking about a little bit earlier with like collecting experience. Right. Um, cause if they can put a name to that thing that's been collected, then it like suddenly becomes something you can do something with. Like it can be instrumentalized. If you can say like, I'm a masochist, like you can, the, I think part of the thought process is that you can like push that to like have some kind of trajectory, like a narrative trajectory. Right. It like provides you with a narrative, like a point of view. Right. And we like love narrativizing our own lives all the time. And especially like if you have like a desire to write or like a sort of a compulsion to write, like you want that point of view. Like you want as many points of view as you can collect the better. So like you kind of desperately want some sort of lens or like some sort of particular label that allows you to look at something in a particular light so you can write about it as accurately as you can. So like putting a label on your desires and saying, okay, like I like this thing, that means I'm a masochist. So I can write about like masochistic desires because now as well, we have like a whole thing where it's like, if you don't, like if you haven't lived through it yourself, you are not allowed to write about it or you're a bad person and you're stealing other people's stories. So it's like, you know, everyone wants to be everything so they can be allowed to write about it because like, there are only so many things you can write about, you know, like there, there are only so many topics. Yes. Oh, gosh. I have so many thoughts about that. I mean, so like, yeah. And I think one thing about these girls and these stories that's so interesting is that they don't necessarily have a point of view. Like, and I'm not saying that in a bad way, like, because it's still, we read them and they're still like these, they're still interesting stories, even if we can kind of acknowledge that, like, in some of them, there isn't a, like, quote, point of view. But we also have these men in the stories, like, offering them that this could be a point of view but they kind of seem to like entertain but also like reject it and it's kind of this back and forth of I mean again it's like an ambivalence toward um toward writing experience or towards under like towards organizing experience which I think is like a very like powerful sentiment that one like to suggest that one might not need to organize experience um but about what you were saying about like kind of collecting experience I mean it feels like we're there are many things that I think sort of like train us to think that way and I like this is so like I sound like a a crazy person but I'm like the census made us right for vice <laughs> like I'm like if you wanted like a clear historical trajectory I'm just gonna tell you right now filling out the census made you write an article for vice about being a masochist <laughs> that's like a direct line to me um because that is about kind of like like selecting I mean, we're all kind of in this like, oh, everyone's like co-constituted and the individual is fake and we have all of these like experiences that influence us. And yet then we like respond to that by saying, I want to kind of like categorize things so that I can like make an experience legible and then not get called out if I write, you know, something about it, because then I can like point to my like census intake that says like, uh, like, married masochist like lives in Iowa or what you know I don't know I, right. I think 
I know this sounds crazy, but like, I think there is kind of like a, I think there's a trajectory there. Um, I think you have a point. I think you definitely have a point, right? I mean, it's, <laughs> I don't know, it just makes me think of all these quizzes that people have been taking in the last couple of days, like filling out like, you know, like your food preferences and whether or not you're a Sigma male, which is like how everyone's a Sigma male. I don't know how that's possible. But like, you know, it's, it's like that thing where you're trying to like fit all of your experiences and your preferences into neat little boxes. And it's like, it's like a very cliche thing to say, you know, like we're all just trying to like fit in. We're all trying to like label our experiences and our desires in a particular way. But I think you're right that there is, there is kind of a trajectory with that, like where you start off with that and then you end up like you know, narrativizing your life in a particular way, because that's the way that you've been, you know, told to do it or taught to do it. And I mean, I hit like, you know, it feels so, I hate to be the person to be like, well, it's, you know, especially bad for women, but it like, I think there is something that is like, especially, um, unique to like women's writing about this kind of wanting to, uh, to check and make sure that things are like lining up in a, and. Well, I, mean, I think that's because we like curating our experiences, right? And so like that provides us with a way to do it. So it's kind of like a trap that we tend to fall into where you curate your experiences, but you also like curate your bad experiences and you kind of like force yourself into bad situations to like be able to curate it in a particular way. Yeah. I mean, it's like hunting for the narrative. And I think um, there... I mean, I go back to Mary Gateskill and Chris Grouse a lot because I think they are both kind of like doing a commentary on like the curation of experience or the kind of like doing it while still pushing against it. And I mean, like, I don't actually know how many people tend to read like Gateskill as autofictional. And I don't think that's a fair reading, but I also like, I think many like contemporary women who are writing get kind of pushed into the autofictional category. And if she were writing today, she would certainly, or I mean, she is writing today, but like if she were a young woman writing today, if bad behavior were being published today, like it would be received probably. And I don't know if it was received as like autobiographical or autofictional or whatever, but I mean, I think like, I don't think it mattered that much in the past, right? Like it didn't, it didn't really matter. No, I don't think it mattered either. And it's like this kind of it mattering is a new thing, right? And I think that it is in part because of how we're like encouraged to like divide and like articulate particular like nodes of identity or of experience. But I mean, like a good kind of... um, contemporary like corollary I guess would be I mean first girls uh hence my tweet that (laughs) secretary should have been directed by Lena Dunham um girls as a contemporary corollary but also like more easily uh cat person um by Kristen Rubinian like this could easily be in conversation with the gate skill story but the reaction to that isn't like man what like 
what a weirdly ambivalent story about a woman having sex in a situation that is maybe like a little bit skeezy, but a little bit not. Um, Cause again, the men are never good or bad as the women are not good or bad, but the reaction to cat person was very much like this guy's a gross jerk or like <laughs> this girl was like, groomed like imagine Mary Gates still talking about grooming that's like insane um (laughs) (laughs) but but like the I mean in this story like Caperson she had a ton of interviews where people were like did this happen to you and her reaction like a normal person was to say like no it's fiction but like there's still this impulse to call it somehow not or to allege that like it must have some kind of non-fictional element that like I mean it's such a weird response to like truth and affects of something being true right like I mean and I don't want to go off the rails or whatever but like the response the girl who wrote the essay responding to Capris and I don't know if you saw this floating around in like July um, her being like cat person was based on my life, but it got some details wrong. And now I'm writing a think piece about how I'm like mad that it got details wrong, even though it's fiction. Did you see that? No, thank God I did. Oh, it. <laughs> it's like extremely like cuckoo bananas. <laughs> like, yeah, um, it sounds like a wow. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, there's again, there's an impulse to want to like fact check or like make real something that like as fiction can have an affect of reality without being literally real like that's fucking the point of realistic fiction but like we've somehow lost that and particularly about like women and sex we've totally lost that no (laughs) no no you're right it's funny though because I think um reading Mary Kate's girl it's kind of like I think she's one of the most like reading her writing is kind of physically painful for me for some reason. Like, especially um, when I read her novel, Veronica, I like straight, like I was like shaking. I was like reading it and <laughs> shaking and like crying. And I was like, I can't, you know? And it's like, obviously, you know, it's not a real story. Like she was never a model in Paris in like the eighties or anything, but it's like, you know, it's not auto fiction. It's not a memoir, but it, there's just something so... I think that's the thing, though, that I think good fiction gets the emotions right. It can get the details wrong. It can get like the situations wrong, whatever. But it gets the emotions right. And that's and I think even like a lot of memoirs, you know, as accurate as they can be, a lot of biographies often get those emotions wrong. I think that's often, especially the case with biographies, obviously, but even memoirs tend to do that sometimes when like, you know, like somebody's like describing their life, like looking back at it from like when they're older, from like a different point of view. And it's sort of like, they don't remember how it felt like to be like young and in that situation that they're describing. And so it just ends up kind of being like, the kind of thing where they're judging the younger version of themselves for like ending up in that situation or having to deal with like whatever, you know, whatever thing that there it is, that whatever thing it is that they're describing. And I think that's why like Mary Gates skills writing is so impactful is because she gets the emotions 
Right. Like she gets the emotions of someone like stuck in a very uncomfortable, like relationship. Right. Right. Like she gets the emotions of someone like stuck in like a literal whorehouse. Right. As well. Like it's, it's like, there's something that rings very true about just like the nature of like women, you know, and female (laughs) fragility. Um, yeah. And I mean, I think it's like, it feels very like hokey to be like, oh, I want like a fiction that feels true, but, and I I would get in all sorts of trouble (laughs) with my like peers in graduate school for saying like, (laughs) I am like maybe looking for something that like feels true. Um, which I guess is like ultimately like the problem with all like mediation, like no matter what, like genre or medium it's in it's like like truth is like always a question of mediation but I think that what you're kind of getting into is a good distinction I mean you're like I feel like you're like well on your way to making like a good distinction between feeling truth and something that's described as relatable right because we have right a lot of conversation like a lot of the kind of critiques of books and movies and tv is like is this relatable but that's a very different question than is this truthful because I read Gateskill and I'm like a whorehouse to me personally is not relatable (laughs) however (laughs) there is something that feels very true about it right and this could be like I wonder I guess what that has to do with some kind of like question of empathy or like because something can feel true without like being experiential, I guess, which is different than I think relatability, which requires something experiential. Um, You're definitely right. No, absolutely. And I think maybe, I mean, I'm just, you know, having the door here, but like, I think maybe that's your problem with the movie adaptation of the secretary, because in a way, like it feels weirdly relatable, right? Like all those like quirky details, like, like the, you know, like the Florida setting and stuff, like it's kind of meant to make you feel like you relate to the main character, right? Kind of like in a way, the, the movie adaptation kind of has a lot more in common with, um, I completely forgot the name of that film. God, um, oh my God. It's about two girls who just graduate high school and one of them begins an affair with, um, um, uh, Steve Buscemi, um, like, Ghost World? Yeah, Ghost World, exactly. Right. <laughs> Sorry. I literally like I said I said told you earlier. I was like, like, I'm is it Ghost World? Like, like I'm so hungover right now. Um <laughs> yeah, I'm in Ghost World. Sorry. Um, like I think it has a lot more in common with like Ghost World, which is an incredible movie, but like it and it True. plays around with the idea of relatability in a different way. But I think it's kind of aiming for that sort of like quirky early 2000s late 90s um sort of like suburban setting thing while as this story feels a lot more alienating and like sort of atomized right like I can't quite like I get the feeling from it but I don't get the setting from it you know what I mean that's (laughs) so interesting I because for me I'm like very alienated by the Florida setting though I think that you're right in saying that there is like a very it's like a a product of its time like it does I see your comparison to Ghost World when I was I was watching it with um 
a good girl gone mad. Um, and she was like, this looks like Twin Peaks. And I was like, first of all, surprised. That I don't know if she's seen Twin Peaks. I'm like, I don't think you have. <laughs> she's going to hear this and be like, stop talking about me (laughs) stop making stuff up about me um but I was like oh you're so right like why why is it doing that like why is this kind of like this weird like it looks like a cool Chinese restaurant or like what somebody imagined like the office I'm like why are there why is it so um quote unquote oriental (laughs) Yeah, that aquarium <laughs> scene where he's like turning on the water fountain and the aquarium yeah. is like staring and she's like, oh, wow. It's like, what is going on? But because, yeah, because it is kind of like there's something, it's the set design is so weird to me. And I think I can see like your point about how that is kind of like, like there's something that we know from that, that can maybe let you engage in it but also like does like create some some form of like comfortable distance because we are like recognizing this right um but maybe it's just because like I've lived in the place that the story is set that like that alienation that you're describing I'm like no I'm like fully like I see where she is like um, yeah, I mean, but I guess like, it's definitely kind of like the setting in the movie feels like more like lush than the, the story. But I do feel like that kind of alienation that you're describing. I'm like, no, that's why I don't feel alienated from it. Right. Um, uh, I mean, I wait, but tell me more. Sorry, go ahead. No, I was just going to say that I think that's why they, I think sort of the overarching theme of the movie that's absent from the story is that we're all kind of perverts. I think that's the idea that it's trying to like, you know, make the audience question, right? Because it's like, because at the end of like, in the movie, they get a happy ending. And personally, I love it when perverts get a happy ending. <laughs> There's something <laughs> I find really heartwarming about it. But like, I think that that's meant to be sort of like a play on like, you know, the early 2000s, late nineties, like rom-com thing where it's like, Oh, you have these two people and they fall in love in an unconventional setting. And in this case it's pretty sexual and erotic and whatever, but it's like, you're just like them, you know, you can fall in love too. <laughs> like he has that sort of like, again, early 2000s, like billboard advertisement yeah. kind of feeling to it. Well, as the story, obviously it's a lot more nuanced as writing tends to be in general, because I think like fiction, especially is a much more new, like it allows for more nuance and detail. But I think, um, I quite like that thing about the movie. Like I, <laughs> I like the, I, I like the weird Florida setting and the weird Oriental <laughs> office. And like, I like all of that. And I think Maggie Gyllenhaal looks incredible in that film. She um, does look really good. She looks really good in that film, which is like, I, I was saying this to my sister earlier this morning that I think, cause we watched it together this morning. Uh, and I was just saying to her that I think that's what was missing from the adaptation of 50 shades of gray for me, where Dakota Johnson is like a conventionally attractive person, but like in the film, she just looks like, like a brick wall, you know, like she has no emotions yeah. on her face. Like she's just like 
she's missing any sort of like sex appeal or like feeling to her. Well, it's Maggie Gyllenhaal is like someone who wouldn't be considered like conventionally attractive, but she just looks so like sexual in the movie. And I think that's the one thing that the movie gets quite right. But I do kind of, yeah, I do think the ambiguity of the story makes it more interesting. And I think the fact that I also kind of, in a way, love the Me Too twist at the end, or when she's fired from her job, she gets like a call from the journalist because the lawyer decides to run for mayor. And the journalist is like, oh, would you, would you be willing to like give an interview to like <laughs> talk about your experiences with this person? Like, I, I did kind of like that. I think that was cool. I mean, I think that's a great ending. And I that's also the thing is like, if this were like, and I, again, I think you're very right about like the film being very like placed in time in a particular way though. I, so when I was rereading the story this morning, like that, like um scene where she like jacks off in the movie and like, whatever there's like the washing machine and like the flowers and stuff I was like right this is crazy but that I mean liberties are taken right with the like boyfriend or whatever um but that weird flower scene is in the story and I was like surprised because I had never really thought about that scene in the story before I watched the movie and I feel like now I'm like I like totally like forgot that now I feel like I can't forget that part of the story. Um, but um, yeah, I, I like that. Hap- they, I just feel like it would be like impossible to adapt this movie with the ending that they gave it in like whatever, 2002. Right. Like, but I also feel that similarly, like the ending would be completely massacred if the movie were done today as well. Oh, absolutely. Right. (laughs) Yeah. It would just be destroyed. Like, cause in the, I like that she doesn't do anything besides like go to the basement and like sit on the couch, like next to like a bug. (laughs) Um, I guess this movie could have been made in like, 2010 and that's maybe when it would have been made correctly <laughs> that's right. when it, the true yeah. the true lena dunham should have made it i agree with you though I, I would love to see her adaptation of the story <laughs> well i was like looking for to see if like there were any kind of like quotes from either gateskill or lena dunham about one another but i couldn't find i mean i didn't like look super hard i um, there's an interview with like L magazine where the um the interviewer like asks her if she's watched girls and she's like, I haven't. <laughs> um, but I I do think that like girls is kind of like the natural progression of Mary Gates skill in that um we're seeing the like next generation of like girls collecting experiences in New York to write about and kind of it's to me a similarly ambivalent text um that like again is like all about these kind of questions like experiential questions and kind of Something. I mean, I think that like people get sucked into more like questions of relatability or accuracy with Lena Dunham. Um, but I think it is kind of like these are like in a family tree together. <laughs> There's no way around it. 
Right. No, I th- I think you're right. Yeah. And I think that's also, I mean, I don't know. I think, um, especially like with the romantic weekend, it made me think a lot of that scene between Hannah and Adam in the show. Like, um, I think that scene is like referenced multiple times throughout the show when he's like, when she's like leaning against a table and he's like fucking her from behind. And I don't know. I think there was something, I don't even remember if he like spanks her or anything, but I, I just think that there was something like very like, sadomasochistic about it somehow and it just kind of made me think of that like the the sort of like even though Hannah is like not depicted to have any sort of masochistic tendencies whatsoever like I think there's just something about like this again like the ambiguity of like like sex and like sexual relations and like all that stuff that's like present in both of their um like writing and stories and stuff yeah, and totally. And I mean, I think that Hannah is like a version of the girl in a romantic weekend where she's like, yeah, I'm into this, but she like doesn't know what it means or like how to like do anything really. But because I'm thinking about that, like, I think it's in the third season where like Hannah dresses up as like a woman trying to have an Bear, and then like Adam goes to the bar and she's like they're like walking out on the street and she's like oh he's like hitting me he's like trying to take me and like some <laughs> random guy like punches Adam or something like, it's like something like that and then she's like no oh my god I was kidding and it's like this it's like all these stories have this kind of like should I be like performing some kind of like understanding of sex or desire that I don't necessarily have, but I don't not have, but it's not like coded as like sex, positive sex experimentation. It's like, like a kind of hesitant, like interest in trying something. Right. And it's the same thing with like secretary, right. Where it's like, she's actually really into trying it, but like sort of like the setting of those, like, the setting of that like the fact that it's like happening with her boss the fact that it's like she's not quite sure if she wants it but at the same time it's like I think I, I thought it was really interesting that like after he spanks her for the first time she's like oh I have to go to the bathroom and like jerk off or like I can't you know like I, I wish this lady wasn't here right now and it's like I, I do yeah I, I do think that that's kind of interesting I don't know I think um I mean again though like, that's the other thing that I wanted to talk about is like the nature of uh consent or more so like the way that consent is viewed nowadays and like what it means and like the sort of the consent discourse that's been going on for the past like 12 years (laughs) yeah um well what do you I mean I I'm like ready with the Harper's essay by my side I'm like let's go (laughs) Um, but tell me so what do you like what do you make of it kind of what do you make of it from the stories and like yeah, I guess what's your what's your take? Um, I'm just talking a lot. <laughs> <laughs> my my take on my take on consent. Um, well, I think I mean it's, it's like a very cliche thing to say, right? But it's like I mean it's all ambiguous, and like sex is ambiguous, and consent is a very like thin line that is very easy to cross. I think, especially in like the way that it's being defined nowadays. And I think women tend to cross it as often as men do. And I think it's all very, I think it's all very complicated. It's all very complex and cannot be simplified. And I think you can't really consent to sex when there is money involved. 
but I think also that's mm-hmm. fine. I think that's like part of it as well. Um, and I think that, God, I, I think you also often consent to things that you don't have enough knowledge about to be consenting to, but that's also just part of like, I don't know, being a person and being an adult and like growing up. <laughs> yeah, I guess, I mean, I'm also curious because you're a little bit younger than me. And I'm kind of curious as to like, I guess how you've kind of like been taught to like internalize certain like conversations about consent or because I mean, I I think even since, you know, I don't think that's ever like a a word that like I consent is like not a word that I heard until college. Like this is not like what we like our like kind of conversations and like sex ed or whatever were definitely not framed around like consent as even in conversation with safe sex necessarily like and I mean I think that Gateskill kind of makes like motions toward this in the essay by talking about rules and like how is it that rule like like detached from sex but kind of like how is it that rules are taught or how do we understand rules as like people that are like entering into a space of like agency and subjectivity right um but yeah so I'm kind of curious about that and then I can kind of go into like a little story about like what it is like to teach gate skill to like people who are 18 now and have a very different relationship to sex I think than people my age or your age um well I think I don't remember hearing the word consent until I was like probably like 16 like uh, until I was like in high school and I mean I grew up on tumblr but even then I don't remember it being like a conversation. I mean, I was mostly in like sad girl Tumblr, which is a bit different from like a political Tumblr, but still, like, I don't remember that being a conversation. I mean, people were, if anything, I remember like BDSM and like, you know, like, like all that being a conversation, you know, all those photos of like girls being choked and stuff. I remember that being a thing, but I don't remember people talking about like, um, any of like, yeah, like the political stuff about it. But I, I, it's just, it kind of seemed to me that it like appeared out of nowhere and I never quite understood what it was. And I used to have a lot of male friends when I was younger. And I just remember like having all these conversations about how like they didn't really get what it was and I didn't really get what it was. And it was like, <laughs> like, what does this all mean? And I mean, it's, I, I guess it's a bit different in Europe as well, because I mean, yeah. you know, I think our approach to sex is just generally different, but I, yeah, I just remember like being very confused by it. And I remember thinking like, um, that you don't like judging, like from my own like experiences in high school and stuff that you can't really like, like sometimes you're just not in the condition to consent to something that you're like willing to do, you know, like you might be willing to do something, but you wouldn't be able to like verbally express it even. So it's like, I don't know. I think, I think now I understand 
the nature of it and like what people mean by when they say it a lot more. And I think if anything, I have kind of like, despite sort of becoming more conservative as I get older, I think my understanding of consent has kind of like softened in a way. Like, I think I understand it a lot more and I understand sort of the importance of it or whatever. But I do think that, yeah, for like a very long time, I was very confused by sort of the meaning, (laughs) like the meaning behind it. And what it means in, like, especially in sort of like, um, like in situations where there's like a power imbalance or whatever. Yeah, I mean, I think it's also like, once it becomes a conversation about a power imbalance, like, there are also kind of like varying degrees of that, that like, mm, could like stand to have a little bit more nuance, right? Like someone who is your boss is certainly different than like someone who's slightly older than you or whatever and like but I and I think that there's also kind of a refusal to like in kind of discussing power imbalance there like tends to be like and you know this and I know this and like whatever people know this like the power does go both ways and like someone might have a bit more but like you also uh, And I think that like Gate School does do a good job of kind of like positing this in all of her stories and in her essay where it like maybe people have like a slightly more intuitive, people are a little bit more intuitive than like we've kind of given or than we are like presently giving people credit for in terms of understanding like where you stand in any kind of given situation. This is, of course, different than like a violent situation, right? Like, (laughs) right. But I think that's kind of, I mean, especially with like age as well, right? Because I think there's definitely um, that the power imbalance is sort of equal on both sides when it comes to age gaps in a way, because I think youth and beauty is a power, right? And even if somebody might have like more money or like more of a social status than you, like, they want what you have. And I think a lot of relationships, especially I thought a lot of like hookups and like, you know, one night stands and stuff, they sort of function off that. They function like they only work because of the power imbalance because otherwise there's no point in them almost. Yeah. And I mean, I think that like before, I guess we could get into, I'm like looking back at the essay. I mean, I think that like she kind of posits in her essay, she like goes against like Pallia and and the like MIT lecture about um, like any girl who like goes to a party is like by herself or whatever is an idiot because how could she not like expect to be raped or whatever, right? Like that's kind of the, um, I mean, I was going to say reductive, but it's like not that reductive. <laughs> like that is basically the argument, right? But I think, like, Gatesville is pretty much the only person who I've read that I feel doesn't swing too far in one direction, right? Like, she's kind of, like, radically centrist about this. Like, she is good at accounting for um, what experiences one is bringing to something and that it isn't about kind of, like, being smart or clever or not but about like literally like do you have kind of like learned experience to interpret the situations around you and that is I think if we're talking about like consent as a yes or no like 
game that puts the premium on the verbal, like a verbal affirmation rather than any kind of like other thing that you could like read or interpret in a scenario. Like, I mean, the kind of yes, no thing really takes away from your ability to like be a person or be a reader of people and a reader of like stories and situations and narratives. So then how are we expected to kind of like narrativize things and write things if we're kind of like being told not to read the situations that we're in? Like, how could you turn something into a story if you can't even read it when you experience it? And I think that like there has been a sort of like collapse in the continuum of like, sexual experience and vocabulary where every kind of like slight is read as in conversation with like a potential future violence. Um, So that's one thing. I mean, I also think that she kind of gets to this with talking about like her explaining that experience with the boy in Detroit to other women and then other women being like, Oh, like that's rape. Like, let's tell you that you got raped, which is like a weird kind of, if we're thinking about, verbal like consent and interpretation and to have there is like this this um like fissure in the kind of conversation about consent if we also have like people explicating what it is or isn't that you've experienced I thought it really, I thought it was really interesting though. Like one of the women that she tells that story to, she's like, um, I literally wrote this down. She's like, it sounds like you were raped. It sounds like you raped yourself. I thought that was was like, whoa. Okay. I mean, kind of, I mean, yeah, I guess because like what she's ultimately talking about is the fact that like by seeing the story in that particular light, it's like you're inflicting violence on yourself because you like choose to see it in that light, right? Because the situation was so ambiguous that the decision on how you choose to like interpret it is completely yours and you choose to interpret it in this light so like therefore you kind of choose to rape yourself in that context and I was like whoa that's that's like more extreme than Polya that's like <laughs> yeah it was like, like she wants to fight <laughs> yeah I was like that's really hardcore wow no I um, that was interesting yeah that one's pretty crazy and it's also like I mean like that's so it's such a like a confused statement because like I do kind of like I am willing to like buy into like the intellectual exercise of it sounds like you raped yourself but then it's also kind of I mean consider this is written in like 94 and now it's kind of like wow it sounds like everybody's like raping themselves (laughs) like right right (laughs) because I feel like that's kind of like to some degree, like you are taught to narrativize something like that. Um, and I mean, it sounds like maybe our kind of like educations about that are more aligned than, um, than I would anticipate. And certainly than like are they are with like my students now, but like they have such a different, like they can articulate such a different understanding of consent but then like I mean I've taught secretary many times before and the um the boys always tend to be very uncomfortable with it and these are like 18 year olds um they tend to be much more uncomfortable with it than the girls who tend to react to it with like 
quote, I didn't know fiction could feel so real. And it's like, you're 18. Obviously, you've never been in this particular situation, but it goes back to this kind of reality effect that we were talking about. But then on the other hand, like my other um, favorite uh, sexually conservative text, Fleabag, um, I taught the... um, in an intro to film class where I was like trying to explain the male gaze to them and like, you know, how very difficult it is to like theorize what it is that like a female gaze could be in film or what does that mean? Or does it have to be like an opposition or whatever? So I use the opening scene of Fleabag with the whole like breaking the fourth wall thing to explain like she's kind of walking us through the male gaze. And then I had a student email me like a day after class being like, I can't believe you showed me a rape scene without warning me. And I was like, Oh no, damn. What the fuck? (laughs) Um, and it really like fucked with me because I like, couldn't wrap my head around how somebody could interpret. I think she says something like, and I let him like put it up the bomb or whatever. Cause I was a little drunk and I was like, it's so hard for me to like put myself in a, in, in the like perspective of the student who read that as rape. Um, they need to read more Mary Gates school, I guess. <laughs> no, no, that's, that's true. No, I, I think it's interesting though, that like a lot of, um, Sorry, I just like got a message and like totally distracted me. Oh no, 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 it's okay. <laughs> um, no, I I think it's interesting though that I think um again, that's that's like a very cliche critique of like the whole sort of consent discourse, but I think it's interesting that um a lot of it also has to do with experience right like it's like such a basic thing to say but it's like if you don't have enough experience like being in those kind of situations like having sex like being in a relationship you simply like don't understand those dynamics in the same way and I think a lot of the discourse and I focus on like verbal consent and sort of written consent as well has to do with just people being inexperienced in those like situations and if they were more experienced they wouldn't feel that way but it's like I mean I I mean you must have felt awful because it's not like you could have emailed back being like oh you just should you should just get laid more and then you would understand right but it's like (laughs) like, have you considered having sex (laughs) yeah no exactly it's like no it's crazy um right no I I think but I think it's very interesting that like um I mean it was like life-changing um to read Camille Paglia for me when I was in high school. Um, like, especially like her, her whole idea about like, you know, going to like frat house parties and stuff and like that you sign yourself up for basically being like gang raped if you go to one of those, which I don't actually think is her point at all. Like, I thought that was kind of weird Mary Gates skills essay where she's like, oh, she's basically saying that if you go to like a frat party, you're going to get <laughs> gang raped and you're okay with that. But I think, because I think her point was more about the fact that you like, um, sort of sign up for having sex, not necessarily with all of the people there. I don't know if I'm like misreading it though, but um, no, it's been like a minute since I've read that too. Um, but I think, I mean, I think ultimately they are both saying like relatively similar things about like personal responsibility and like, um, and I guess consequence really right like and I mean consequent it's not like I think 
conversations about like agency and particular like women's agency are very centered around the like ability to make choice but not the consequence of making choice right like the conversations kind of like when you know very like simple conversations about like is this a good portrayal of like a woman making choices in this like story or a movie or whatever but it's not like rarely do we read um rarely do we read consequence as the kind of like thing that defines a subject it's always choice that defines the subject rather than consequence um and I think that maybe Palia and Gateskill are kind of ultimately saying something similar about like living with choice um after the fact and like I mean I think they're also talking wait sorry (laughs) no no, no, they're also kind of talking I think they're also kind of talking about like the way, like the power that interpretation has in a way, right? It's like, as you look back at your experiences of that kind, it's your interpretation of them that kind of shapes your, um, shapes your experience like post factum, right? So it's like, if you look at your experience, like I thought it was really interesting, like the example that she brings up in the essay of that uh, guy who's like slightly younger than her that she invites over for dinner and they end up like making out on the couch. And then he like tries to have sex with her and she's not into it. Um, and she kind of like makes it very clear to him that she's not into it, but then eventually they end up having like a two year long affair. And I thought it was also like very sort of eye opening and honest that she says that event, like originally she wasn't going to include that in the, um, in that essay, but she thought it would have been dishonest if she didn't, because that's such a huge part of it as well right like yeah she wasn't into it that night but eventually she was very much into it and she did like the guy and he liked her but it's like sometimes it's like it really is about like your interpretation of it and I think that kind of goes back to like our desire to narrativize our experiences and narrativize them in a certain way and I think that has a lot to do with like um I think because confessional writing is so popular now and still pays very well, I think, and a very particular type of confessional writing, especially, I think people have a tendency to interpret their past experiences in a particular light because they feel like they have to in order to be considered a serious writer. So like if someone were to write about their experience of like an uncomfortable date, but just write about it in that light isn't like oh that was like shitty that wouldn't sell well right but if you sell it as a date rape story then that's a whole other thing so it's like I think like the (laughs) this this is this is so shitty but like you know the capital really plays into it no it does I mean there's no kind of like and I mean the promise of because it's not just like capital plays into it but like the promise of it right so we have all of these like whatever like Jezebel confessional pieces that are kind of like the promise of getting something after putting this out right like the promise of I have this one like viral story that can maybe I didn't get paid for it but like it's going to get me paid eventually um I mean the kind of the seminal example like the like I had sex with my dad story or whatever oh yeah (laughs) yeah yeah and like (laughs) the woman who wrote that was like whatever got paid 50 bucks for this and then like 
all of my pitches were ignored afterwards. <laughs> so I'm, yeah, I, like certainly there is kind of like capital and or the promise of it attached. I'm, I'm curious, have you read I Love Dick? I have, yeah. Okay. What, how do you think that like fits into it? It fits into generally all of this. And I guess if you had some time on Tumblr, maybe you have opinions <laughs> of how it's been taken up on Tumblr. Um, I mean, honestly, I think the reason it was so popular in Tumblr had a lot to do with the cover and just the name of the book. I don't think a lot of people read it actually, or read it past like the first hundred pages when it goes really into like the theory of stuff. (laughs) I I mean, I think like the first, like, you know, like 60 pages of it where it details the relationship between her husband and um, the the man named Dick are like the ones that I think everyone reads. And then when it goes into like, you know, the philosophizing or whatever, I think that's where probably a lot of people people stop reading but I think I think it's funny because I think in a lot of ways I love dick is a story about a woman's inability to understand no (laughs) I think why it's also the reason why it's such a good story as well because I think women can be like perverts as well and I think women have trouble understanding consent as well, even more so than men now, because, you know, I think now we've kind of trained young men and boys to see no as like, you know, like a reason to stop. But I think with women, a no is a challenge. That's a very good point. Yeah. Because it's like an ego thing with women, right? It's like, there's no fucking way he's not into me. (laughs) Like, there's just no way, you know, like if he's not into me, because with men, it's like, if she, if she's not into me, like maybe she's just not into like, maybe she's just not into having sex. But if with women, it's like, if a guy or a man or a boy is not into you, it's about you. Cause there's no way men don't want to have sex. So it's like very, it's a lot more personal when it comes to when it was, when it has to do with women, right? Like we take it very personally. Yeah, definitely. There is. Um, well, I think that this has to do with kind of the, um, not to sound like a stodgy old, old man, but like the consequence and responsibility thing, right. Where we feel that like maybe, we are somehow exonerated from concept as women we get to feel exonerated from consequence for some kind of bizarro post-feminist like rationalizing but then like as you're saying then it can't be somehow it has to be a reflection on us if somebody says no because how could like how could we be turned down? Like that, I think that this is wrapped up in some kind of like understanding of like lack of consequence, but still like choice making abilities. Um, um, no, absolutely. But I think also the nature of sex positivity teaches us that men are always into sex, and so when they're not, it's personal, right? Like, because the nature of sex positivity tells us that like by like the sort of the sort of like the 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 met like the sort of the hidden message of it is that like men always want it and if you want to be a free woman and you want to be a respected woman and you want to be as powerful as a man you have to want it all the time too so it's like so if a man doesn't want it all the time and he doesn't want it with you that's a you problem (laughs) and not like (laughs) a general problem right so it's like it's it's personal because of that as well yeah and I think I mean certainly I have been in relationships with like men who are less interested in sex than I am and I always thought that like I was like wow I am like personally failing or something and I like it 
was impossible for me to kind of like counter like theorize it right because masculinity is like wildly under theorized by like um I'm sure it's very theorized by people who have no business theorizing (laughs) not to sound like a jerk but I'm mostly just um thinking about whatever like really sad boys who need to get off the computer um but I do yeah like masculinity is certainly under theorized in kind of like gender studies um and that does lead to kind of what you're saying about how women are like incapable of like kind of under like understanding the kind of like human humanness of like men and their relationship to sex um right which I think is very interesting and like the two sex worker stories and that behavior as well right because I mean as I said earlier both of those like men both of those you know John's clients whatever they come to whorehouses not for the sex but for the conversation which I think is also I don't know if you've ever seen any like um advice used to do a lot of them like interviews with like sex workers and prostitutes and stuff and they're always like oh I, I am just like a therapist because a lot of men just come to me to like talk about their problems and how their wife won't sleep them so it's like I feel like I'm doing a service to society and so it's like I think we sort of we try to like I think often we sort of underestimate um the male desire for connection and just love and understanding and so like anytime and we think that the only thing that men are getting from sex is like the physical pleasure of it and not the intimacy of it and so whenever the intimacy is involved we kind of tend to feel like we're some sort of like you know, miracle workers, like we're like, they're saviors. <laughs> oh, that's very funny. I mean, it's true, but that it's I like phrasing it as like a miracle. It's like flattering yourself by calling yourself a miracle worker because like a boy had a, an emotion. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, but I think we tend um, to do that a lot. I mean, I know I tend to do that. So. Yeah, no, I think that's certainly, certainly true. Um, but it, because I mean, I also think like at once this, it's just so like loopy and like, does it kind of like reify, like, does it undo certain like understandings of sex positivity about detachment if women are like feeling some kind of accomplishment and like creating an intimate moment with a man is this kind of like a internalized like anti-sex positivity? Does that make sense? I'm not sure that totally made sense. Wait, um, can you say that again? <laughs> yeah, sorry. Um, if so, if kind of like the thesis of sex positivity is kind of like no strings attached or like disinterest in intimacy and just an interest in um sorry, my husband just like walked across the kitchen, like humping the air because he's listening to this conversation. It's <laughs> um, very um, appropriate. Like genuinely. Oh, yes. <laughs> um, okay. So if kind of like the, like thesis, one of the theses of sex positivity is that there's like a no strings attached kind of like anti-intimacy, like thrust to it or suggestion that intimacy is like um somehow like easier to achieve or like always achievable I'm not sure if it's saying that intimacy is irrelevant or if it's saying that intimacy is always possible through sex um 
or if it's, yeah, or if it's just like totally irrelevant. But I guess what I'm trying to think through is if we're understanding sex positivity as kind of like a certain lack of interest or investment in intimacy, then if some, if a woman is feeling like a miracle worker because she had some kind of intimate connection through sex with a man or made some man feel a feeling of intimacy or something, is that kind of like an undoing? Is this an accidental undoing of certain like tenets of sex positivity? If we're reading one of the tenets as like a a lack of investment in intimacy. I mean, yeah, I think in a way it really is. Right. Like I think we're kind of deliberately, I think we're deliberate sort of not deliberately, but like, I think we're subconsciously trying to like take that concept apart. Right. Because we know there are a lot of laws within it. So it's like, I don't know. It just makes me think of like all those like, um, late two thousands, early 2010s, like friends with benefits movies, (laughs) you Mm, know, where it's like, um, sort of like the sort of, they, they center around the idea of like sex positivity is like an escape from emotions. And then you could be friends with someone and sleep with them and that it wouldn't mean anything. Right. And like, obviously all of those movies were like romantic comedy. So they would end up like with the main characters falling in love and stuff, but it's like, it's sort of, yeah, I think it's like a subconscious undoing of the concept because I think we subconsciously know that there's a lot of things wrong with it. And so we're sort of, we're trying to like, dismantle it but no one is quite brave enough I mean I guess now people are but like I think sort of like the mainstream idea is still like the the mainstream focus is very much sex positive to this day but I think people are slowly waking up to the idea that to the realization that it's a scam (laughs) so we're like subconsciously trying to yeah get rid of it yeah I do think it is like I don't even know if it's that it's like hollow or not, but it just seems like I, maybe the problem is that it seems like rather uncomplicated or it's trying to like facilitate something that is like necessarily complicated. Um, I guess I, I feel like I miss the like friends with benefits, like genre of rom-com. I think I was, well, <laughs> the reason I watched sex in the city too the other day, because I really wanted to like watch a movie that seemed like something I would watch on an airplane. Um, and by that, I think I meant like a friends with benefits type of like comedy. Um, I don't know why that like desire came over me, but the one that like one that, I don't know why this like really like stuck in my brain was that movie like friends with kids. Oh yeah. <laughs> I don't know why that's like the touchstone, but um yeah. <laughs> I don't <laughs> have anything to say. I mean, it feels like some kind of maybe I wonder how this kind of grows out of like post-feminist um like I guess not critique but like how they how friends with benefits sex positivity type detachment movies fit into a kind of like greater trajectory of like post-feminist creation I guess you know what I just realized um I just realized that like the friends with benefits genre um, and like fiction and like movies and stuff is kind of like the liberal version of like a casual affair that was present in all of like late 20th century fiction, because I think sort of 
like the casual affair, right? Just means that basically means no strings attached. But like um, starting from like the early 21st century, people kind of um, became so desperate for a connection that no strings attached just started to mean just a sexual thing, but not necessarily like the relationship, then the nature of the relationship, if that makes sense. So it's like people still wanted sort of the, the excitement and the um, sort of the unpredictability of casual sex without all of the danger and all of the sort of humiliation that that comes with. Because I think we sort of increasingly became more masochistic and sort of like um, performative way, but less masochistic in our like everyday tendencies. So like people became again into like people got into like leather and like, I don't know, like um, spanking each other, but they stopped being into humiliation. So it's like, it's like, it's like the two thing kind of, the two things kind of happen simultaneously almost. Well, I think what I'm hearing is that you're saying that there's kind of like a sanitization of humiliation to a point that it like just becomes like some kind of aestheticized thing rather than a kind of affective thing. Yeah. Right. Yeah. No, exactly. Yeah. And I think also like BDSM and like SM, like SM and like all of those, like, you know, sadom- sadomasochistic practices, I think, I think um, instead of, you know, because in the past, like, even if you look at like movies, like cruising and stuff, um, like they used to involve a certain amount of danger. Right. But like now the people that tend to be into it and sort of the way that those things tend to be presented in the media and stuff, it's all about rules. It's like, how many rules can you pack into this thing? And like the yes. people that you meet that are into BDSM are always like the, like sort of like the, the most like law abiding, like perfect, like recycling, whatever kind of people, right? It's, it's, it's kind of funny. <laughs> yeah, no, I, and I feel like you said something earlier that kind of was maybe like leading you to ultimately make this point. And yeah, I mean, people, people who like BDSM are cops. (laughs) Hey, (laughs) I'm kidding. That's my sound bite. No. um, But no, I think you're right. Is that kind of like what there has been kind of a sense of like a general, and this goes back to the, um, I think this goes back to the Polya essay about consent. This goes to the Mary Gates girl essay about consent is that there's like a desire or there's kind of a push to, um, to sanitize and to implement rules and to kind of like mitigate risk, even though like what is interesting about these situations is like perceived risk, right? Like that's the fun. It's some kind of like combination of like risk or shame or humiliation which are all kind of things that totally make sense as like who doesn't have like an interest, who doesn't have a level of interest in that, right? Um, in like a sexual capacity. Um, but I think kind of as you're saying, like these pe- like people who are now like vocal about their interest in like sex work or BDSM or what have you, it's about, and I think also with kind of like open relationships or whatever it is very like rule forward rather than risk forward and I don't I don't think it's worth spending time trying to articulate if that's good or bad because you know 
the tides will shift and that will, you know, will swing back in the other direction. But rather it's like, I think as you're asking kind of like, why is this moment the moment where people are interested in rules, right? Rather than risk. I mean, I think it also has a lot to do with like people, like especially the female desire to narrativize our experiences is that um, like you want to be able to tell that story about a sadomasochistic relationship you had with an older man, but you don't actually want to suffer the humiliation of it. So (laughs) do you like, you know, put all of these rules into place because at least then you get, because then you get to say that you experienced it without actually experiencing it. And I think that's, sort of I think that's sort of yeah I think that's sort of the bottom line of the whole um sex positive like BDSM like cult of the 2010s yeah I mean this kind of like if there are rules then there can't necessarily be like unforeseen consequences because the rules would like shape or dictate what that might look like so then I can kind of like have the narrative that I expect be the narrative that plays out even though as we know this is like that's that's the real fiction (laughs) right (laughs) no yeah yeah exactly 